Okay, easy enough. Well, welcome back. Uh, thanks for coming back. Uh, that, that meal was delicious, lots of carbs. So if I start falling asleep, just, you know, clap your hands or something like that. If you start falling asleep, I'll just keep going. Does that sound all right? <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's open our time in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness, which endures forever. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, all of your promises are yes and amen. And he is the true and faithful witness. We thank you that in him we have righteousness to cover over all our sins, that we have life and life abundant, that we have new life, so that we are no longer who we once were, but you are making us who you would have us to be. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we pray that you would teach us tonight, that you would lead us, that, that what we say and do might not only be pleasing to you, but would also be edifying and helpful to us as your people. We pray all of this with thanksgiving in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you should have a handout. We remembered tonight to hand it out before we started. Uh, I've also got two additional things. I didn't pass it out because not everybody, uh, not all of you may want this, but if you do uh, want this, I've got other additional handouts up front. Uh, not, not anything that I wrote, but just things that I found helpful. One of them is uh, a chapter from a book called Lead Them to Jesus, a handbook for youth workers. This is the book, Mike McGeary. He's got a chapter in here on understanding the religious worldview of Generation Z, which is kind of the, the youngest generation that's entering into adulthood now. So born like mid to late 90s. Um, and so that, that's just a helpful, brief, you know, three, four page chapter outlining uh, you know, what do most kind of young people think today about religion and so forth. Of course, it's generalized, so it's not going to be true for every single uh, individual. But that, that's a helpful chapter. If you like that, you're welcome to come up and get it. And then this is a handout from a group called CPYU, the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. Um, Walt Mueller is the, the fellow who leads this up, and he, he just puts out really helpful resources on uh, kind of helping parents, helping youth workers understand the the culture, understand the influences on the next generation and kind of how to talk about it, how to think about it biblically. He's got a lot of really helpful resources. This is a God's plan for sex and gender, 10 teaching points for home and church. So a highly relevant topic. I've got these up here. If you'd like one, you're welcome to get it. Two more quick, quick resources. Just to commend to you, you can't take these because these are the only ones I have, but you can take a picture of it and then you can order it. Uh, this is uh, a group called RYM, Reformed Youth Ministries. Uh, James and I used to take kids to summer conferences there down in Laguna Beach, uh, Florida, on Panhandle. Uh, they put out a lot of really helpful resources as well. This is, called, this is called their track series. This is the track series on culture. It's called A Student's Guide to Navigating Culture. Walt Mueller, the same fellow who runs the CPYU group, he wrote this. Very helpful. I like things that are short and to the point and illustrative. So I use this in teaching our youth, and uh, it's, it's a very helpful little book. So I commend that. And then John Parrott, who directs the curriculum for RYM, uh, he, he's a, a good friend of mine. He, he wrote this book, A Student's Guide to Technology. So is uh, very helpful as well. So you can come look at these, you know, pick them up, flip through them if you like. 
just, they've got my name on them, so they've got to stay here. So that's, that's the rule. That's the only rule of God. Well, let's do, um, let's do a little bit of review, and then let me see if you have any follow-up questions. Last night was kind of, we, we cranked the fire hydrant open and just let it loose a little bit, and so sometimes you maybe hear things, and then you, it's hard to process it immediately, and it was a lot of information. So if, you, if you've thought of things and have questions about anything that we said last night, uh, I want to at least open up a little bit of time at the beginning for you to ask any follow-up questions before we get into the next section. So a uh, quick review and then see if you have questions. Last night we began to talk about uh, this, this phenomenon that's been called the dropout problem. That's, that's a phrase coined by David Kinneman, who works with the Barna group. You've probably heard about Barna. They do all these kind of uh, research things for the church. He coined this phrase to describe this phenomenon of the, the two-thirds of church kids, two-thirds of uh, kids growing up in the church, dropping out after high school, disconnecting from the church, and only about one-third of that group of two-thirds, so you can figure out the math there, only about one-third of them coming back, usually around marriage and beginning to have children, and they, they feel like there's a need to connect to the church, raise their children the way they were raised. So there's some negative, some positive. That trend, by the way, that kind of dropout trend after high school is not new. That's, that's as long as uh, people have been keeping records of these things, at least in America, that's a pretty common trend. But what's happened in the last kind of 15, 20 years is that the, the trend has accelerated, if you will. So there's more dropping out, fewer coming back. And so we talked last night about some of the uh, possible reasons for why that trend is getting worse and what's making it maybe a little more challenging for the Christian church in, in America today. So we talked about four factors last night. We talked about the post-Christian culture. We talked about uh, this, this thing called moralistic therapeutic deism or MTD. We'll talk a little bit more about that this evening. We talked about just briefly emerging adulthood, kind of the longer road to reaching those milestones of adulthood. And then we talked about the impact of digital technology. We also looked at uh, the, what are the, what's the biggest human factor for those who stay, for those who stay connected to the church um, after high school and so forth into adulthood. Obviously, the main factor is regeneration and the work of God's grace in their lives. But in terms of human factors... Uh, the most, the kind of number one most influential factor in a person's life in terms of their commitment to the church into adulthood is parents, uh, which shouldn't surprise us because what the Bible teaches the importance of parents, uh, parents and other, other adults with whom they have healthy relationships and conversations about spiritual things. So that, that ought to be an encouragement that some of this is not, there's a lot of things that are complicated. Some of this is not complicated, like adults investing in children and youth, loving them, leading them to Jesus, praying with them, praying for them, doing the, all of the things that we talk about in our baptismal vows, they really matter and God really uses them. So that's, that's what we talked about last night. Any questions arising from uh, what we covered yesterday evening? Pick up in the drop-off versus when blue loss were kind of being reduced and, and, and going away and maybe have a second generation of people not having blue loss or reduction of blue loss in their life? 
so the question is, was there any kind of connection between drop off or drop out and coming back and the, the dropping or the elimination of blue laws, uh, which are, I guess, laws restricting what kinds of activities go on on Sunday, right? Is that, is that what you mean by blue laws? I, you know, I didn't read anything about that. That's a great question, though. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I wonder how much of the, because a lot, of, a lot of the things that are written are more nationally representative, and I would assume, I don't know this, but I would assume that a lot of blue laws that probably southern states were the last ones to drop blue laws, that probably most of the rest of the states either didn't have them or dropped them a long time ago. And so maybe because they're looking at national statistics, they might not have factored that in. There's certainly uh, maybe another angle on that, though, is the increase in organized sports on Sundays, which may or may not be connected to the dropping of blue laws. I don't know. Um, but that's certainly, nobody talks about that, but I don't, they probably don't have to research it to just see what an impact that has on the, the way families value the church. You know, you set, you set priorities with what you do. Yes? Was there any study done on divorced parents and the children? Sure. Um, this, this is uh, some questions about the connection between divorce, you know, uh, a divorced home, divorced parents, and kind of the effect of, on the religious lives of children. Uh, statistically speaking, uh, marriage is uh, uh, families where, where husbands, where moms and dads are together. Uh, usually tend to be slightly more religious than those that, that have uh, divorced. And so that trickles down, obviously, to the next generation. Uh, and that's, that's been true for a long time, I think. But this is a book that goes through a lot of that. If you're into statistics and kind of evaluating, analyzing all that stuff, I'm not. So it takes me a lot of time to read through those things and try to wrap my head around it. But it is interesting uh, if you can work your way through it. This is a book by Ryan Burge called The Nuns, again, N-O-N-E-S, not, not N-U-N-S, where they came from, who they are, and where they are going. So he's looking at why is there this rise in um, people who choose no religious affiliation on general surveys. And see, so he kind of goes through all the ins and outs, and he does talk a little bit about kind of marital status and how that correlates with religious affiliation. So he's like a political scientist or something. But he's also a Baptist pastor. So he's, he's thinking about it as a Christian. Okay. Well, well uh, those are good questions. Thank you all. If you have your Bible, uh, open with me to Colossians 1. If you don't, you can just listen. I'm not going to read uh, a lot, but I'll read just a little bit from Colossians 1. And we'll come back to this uh, in tonight's uh, talk. This is Paul's letter to the Colossians, um, and in the, these verses, verses uh, chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, and then I'm going to read 2, 6, and 7. So chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, then 2, 6, and 7. Paul's kind of laying out for us his priorities in ministry. What, what was important to the Apostle Paul as he thought about Christian ministry? What was the means of that ministry? What was the goal of that ministry? So hear what he says in verse 28. We proclaim him, speaking of Christ, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. 
For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And then skipping down to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. We'll come back to that in, in just a little bit, but I wanted to at least read that at the beginning. So as we, um, as we continue talking about this issue, what I want to talk about tonight is, you know, we've looked at the challenges, we've looked at the factors that are impacting the dropout problem. Now I want to just kind of take a step back and say, okay, what, what wisdom, what, what does the Bible have to say about how we should approach ministry uh, in this type of context, okay, which is an important question. I mean, we could, you know, we could spend a couple hours saying, what do we think we ought to do and, and forget to go to the Bible? But the Bible gives us the answer. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that tonight, but I want to set it up a little bit. So a question. What is the solution to the problem of a false gospel? What would you say to that? A true gospel. A true gospel. Very good. Uh, you get bonus points for confidence and speed in giving that answer. <laughs> That's good. Uh, what is the solution to the problem of a false gospel? It's the true gospel. And so I want you to think about some of the things that we talked about last night, particularly post-Christian culture, moralistic therapeutic deism. Think about those things in, in terms of the category of a false gospel. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, this, this kind of common creed among American teenagers and often among their parents, is this view that there's a God, he exists, he created everything, but he's, it's a deistic view of God. He's not personally involved. He's the blind watchmaker. He winds it up, lets it go. Uh, but he's, he's available if you need him. Uh, there's a therapeutic aspect to it. This God wants you to feel good about yourself and be happy in life. Uh, and he will help you. That's kind of his role. He's the divine butler. He's the cosmic therapist. He's the great guy in the sky who can help you when you know, your boyfriend breaks up with you, your girlfriend breaks up with you, and you, and you feel sad. God will help you feel happy. So this is kind of the general uh, religious view of most American teenagers, it's said. And this is a false gospel, right? I mean, put it in that category. It's, it's giving answers to life's questions. It's giving a, an alternative, an alternate narrative to who we are, what, what's wrong with the world, what's the solution to that problem, what's my authority, uh, what's my identity, what's, what's my purpose. Right? It's giving a different narrative than what the Bible gives us. Same thing with post-Christian culture and, and this idea of, of uh, expressive individualism. That there is no authority outside of me and above me to which I need to conform. Rather, truth and morality are all determined by what I feel and, and what I desire. And, and nowadays, particularly sexual desire. That that determines what's right. That determines what's true. That's, a, that's an alternate narrative than what the Bible says about who we are, what our purpose is, what our problem is, who our authority is. So it's, it's a false gospel. And so when you think about the task of the church in relation to false gospels, which 
there's always something, right? It's not new that there's alternatives. The task of the church remains the same, to do what, what Paul said, to proclaim him, to proclaim Christ with this goal of presenting every man complete, every man perfect, every man mature. And man, there is inclusive men and women. Everyone mature, perfect, complete in Christ. And therefore encouraging those who have received Christ, keep walking in him, being firmly rooted, being built up and abounding with gratitude. Paul's model of ministry, and and therefore as we think about ourselves as Christians, Uh, our model of ministry ought to be the same, a Christ-centered ministry aimed at spiritual maturity. A Christ-centered ministry aimed at spiritual maturity. All right, let's do a little Bible trivia, okay? Um, Paul had lots of missionary journeys, right? You read about this in the book of Acts. We know of three uh, from the book of Acts. One of the places he went was a city called Corinth in Greece. Anybody know anything about the city of Corinth during Paul's time when he, when he went there? Okay, it was, it was pagan, over-sexualized, lots of uh, like temple prostitution type stuff going on. Um, and sometimes that gets exaggerated, but it was certainly a prominent issue in, in town. How many months did Paul spend in Corinth? Do you know? 13, that's close. A little bit more, a little bit more. Slightly higher, but not too much higher. 16, 14, 18. He spent 18 months. Y'all were getting there. You were really close. I feel like somebody was going to land on 18 pretty soon if I, if I let it keep going. 18 months. 18 months. Good job in the back. Thank you. Paul spent 18 months in the city of Corinth. And he, he wrote them uh, either three or four letters. We've only got two of them, but he references other letters in those two letters that we have, First and Second Corinthians. And in First Corinthians, he tells, he tells us, as he's telling them, uh, he tells us what he did in Corinth. And I want to read it to you. Paul's there for 18 months, okay? 18 months in Corinth. The city riddled with problems, pagan uh, as the day is long, they needed Jesus a lot, and Paul spent a lot of time there. And here's how Paul describes his time, 18 months, among the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except, anybody know? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 18 months. 18 months, and all Paul talked about was Jesus Christ and Him crucified? I mean, you think, does it take 18 months to talk about the cross? Does it take 18 months to say, Jesus died for sins, Jesus rose again from the dead for sins, and you need to believe in Him? Does it take 18 months to just get that basic message out? I don't think so. I don't think so. But when Paul talks about his ministry in Corinth and sums it up in this way, 18 months, all I was determined to know among you was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He doesn't mean that he didn't talk about anything else. Obviously he did. Just read his letters. He talked about a lot of things. So what does he mean by that? Part of what he means is whatever else he talked about, um, sexual morality issues, how do you deal with pagan temples, how do you deal with meat sacrificed to idols, how do you deal with church discipline? You know, you got the guy with the relationship with his stepmom, all that kind of weird stuff going on. 
you know, he's talking about a lot of things, but he's always talking about them in relation to the gospel. Okay? The gospel is the, the, the fountain from which it all comes, and, and it's the ocean to which it all returns. It all comes back to Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, to forgive our sins, and to equip us for life and godliness. So whatever Paul was talking about, he always brought it back to the cross. As we think about that, um, I think that's an important model for us as we think about how to push back a little bit against the false gospel of post-Christian culture, or if we can just look at this slice of moralistic therapeutic deism and think about the difference between that and the biblical gospel and how, how to push back against it, uh, Paul gives us a good model for how we ought to do that. So let's, let's think about Christ-centered ministry in an MTD world. I'm just kind of play on MTV if any of you grew up with, with MTV, uh, which was, you know, um, straight from the devil when we were growing up. I don't know, is MTV even a thing anymore? Is this still a channel? I have no idea. Um, we don't have cable, so I don't, I don't know anything. But let's think about this for a minute. And, and I do. I would encourage you, do a little experiment, okay? Uh, but maybe get James to do it and give you a reporter, or y'all could do it. Ask your, ask your children, ask the children of Bethel or the children of Lebanon, ask, ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian, Okay? Young children, middle school, high school children, just ask them. Open-ended question. What does it mean to be a Christian? And, and see how much of their answer reflects this moralistic therapeutic deism. I'm, I'm leading a communicants class with uh, young children at, at our church. That's the you know, first question to ask. What does it mean to be a Christian? How do I become one? And so I asked I these three sweet little girls in, in the communicants class uh, Sunday a week ago. I said, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? What do you think some of their answers were? And this is not, you know, dogging on them. The, the point is to teach them. But what do you think some of their answers were? What's that? Have your best life ever. <laughs> Have your best life ever. No, they, thankfully they didn't say that. Be a good person. Be, a good person, be kind. Do unto others, you know, golden rule. Uh, there was certainly like read your Bible and pray, go to church, that, that type of, of stuff. Um, but a lot of it was, um, you know, things that I do. And, and so, of course, as you ask questions, they're like, oh, yeah, you trust in Jesus. That's, that's, that's part of it. But I'm telling you, this is, so, this is common. It's, it's, uh, it's infiltrated all areas. So uh, do a little survey, see what you come up with. But let's talk about the gospel, the biblical gospel, in contrast to moralistic therapeutic deism. And you've got four categories there. Moralism versus grace. Therapeutic versus redemptive. Individualistic versus others-oriented. And deism versus personal sovereign triune God. The the God of the Bible, not just a generic uh, uninterested God. Moralism. Let's talk about moralism for a second. Uh, what is moralism? Somebody says, "What's more, doing what's right." Okay. What? What else? What's What's connected to moralism? Salvation. Yeah. Right. Doing Doing what's right as the way to salvation. You know how How should I be saved? How do I make myself right with God? Uh, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. Right? Moralism. 
You get a list of rules, you keep the rules, and that's how, uh, that's how you make yourself right with, with, uh, with God. Only some of you laughed at that. Was not, is that not a thing uh, y'all heard? It is, but by that standard, your colleague thought was a better Christian than most of us are. Okay. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, it's not, not a good standard to hold up, I guess. Moralism puts the emphasis and salvation on things you do. Uh, this is the whole problem in the book of Galatians. Uh, you got to keep the works of the law, and that's how you're right with God. And Paul comes back and says, nope, it's grace. It's grace. It's not what you do. It's what's been done for you by Jesus, which is by, why Paul says we proclaim him. Jesus is the one in whom the mystery of God is revealed. Uh, this mystery hidden in the Old Testament and now revealed in the New, that there's righteousness in Jesus for us, and there's forgiveness in Christ for us. You see, the, the gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism is all about what you do. Be kind. Be good to other people. Uh, be a good person. And, and it's kind of a mixed bag, right? Because on the one hand, uh, th- this is a generation that will say, the most important thing you need to do to other people is be nice, be kind, right? Be the I in kind. They had that at, at our local high school. My daughter painted all the other letters and then you, uh, for the art club, and then people came and stood where the I was, and you got your picture taken, be the I in kind. There's nothing wrong with that. That's like, you should be nice to people, that's right. That's not how you're saved, though. There's a difference. On the one hand, this generation is very interested in being kind, being nice, um, being fair, and, and so forth. There's kind of this high justice quotient, uh, while at the same time, um, they... Uh, the, the standard by which they judge that is very, very low. And, and so there's this kind of a mixed bag. I, I, I am right by doing good, but the standard of what good is is completely doable. You just be kind. You be nice to people. The good news of the gospel is far better than just telling somebody, be better, do better, work, work harder. And so in our, what are we communicating to the next generation as we talk about the gospel? As we talk about Christ, as we talk about the Bible, are we somehow communicating an implicit moralism? That the message of the Bible is you need to trust Jesus and you need to do what is right. Is that the, is that the gospel? It's not. We, we sneak it in. We sneak the good works in and we make them part of the foundation of our salvation. You trust in Jesus, you live a good life, and that's how you're saved. And we forget that the, the life is the fruit of grace and response to Christ and his work on our behalf. Not, not the beginning of it. It's, it's the, the fruit that comes from that root. And so in our teaching and our talking about the good news, we need to emphasize it's not what you do, it's what's, what's been done for you. Something that we must receive, rest in, and respond to uh, with a life worthy of our calling. Uh, response to grace. So moralism versus grace. Uh, Therapeutic versus redemptive. Moralistic therapeutic deism emphasizes how you feel and the importance of feeling good and being happy as the goal of life. Uh, The the author that I mentioned last night, Christian Smith, who wrote this book, Soul Searching and Souls in Transition, uh, this last year he wrote a book about handing down faith, uh, kind of from a sociologist perspective, what are the things that parents do that effectively kind of transmit faith from one generation 
to the next. Uh, and it's an interesting book, but one of the most interesting things he, he looks at is uh, he asks the question, well, you know, it's not just how these things get handed down, but what it is that's getting handed down. And so he did this survey and asked parents, what do you want for your children? What's the most important thing that you want for your children? And what do you think most parents would say? I want my children to be happy. Uh, I want them to have a good life. And and again, like, you know, Nobody should say, I want my children to be miserable. <laughs> There's something else wrong with you if that's, if that's your answer to the question. But none of the answers, um, none of the answers, none of the responses said, I want my child to be holy. I want my child to know Jesus Christ crucified and to be conformed to his suffering so that they might be conformed to the power of his resurrection, as Paul says. There was no kind of Christ-centeredness in their answers. It was all therapeutic. I want them to feel good. I want them to be happy. I want them to have a decent life, however that's defined. And so the moralistic therapeutic deism, the MTD gospel, is all about feeling good and an affirmation of self. That there is the problem is not with you. The problem is with the world around you. You know, it used to be if there was if if you had some sort of dysfunction, if you will, you might go receive help, and the help might involve um, you changing, you know, stopping bad habits, starting good habits, whatever the case may be. But now, most of therapy is directed at not helping you to change what you're doing, but helping you to change the way you feel about what you're doing. So, you understand what I'm saying? That's a difference. That's a, that's a difference. There's an affirmation of self that is central to the therapeutic. But what about redemption? What's the first word that Jesus preaches when he begins his earthly ministry? Repent. Repent. It's it's redemptive language. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. The gospel of Christ is about redemption from sin. Redemption from the wrath that is to come. Redemption found fully, sufficiently, all that we need in Jesus Christ. It's redemption. It's about rescuing you from yourself and making you new in Jesus Christ. So You see the the difference. And so as we talk about the goal of life, as we talk about what God wants for us, what, what you want for your children... It's important to think explicitly about what are we communicating. Are we communicating that I I really just want you to feel happy and have a good life? Or are we communicating the most important thing is for you to know the love of Christ? And that involves repentance. It involves faith. Now, you can never do this. You can have miserable sinner Christianity and you just beat them up all the time with it. That may, that's probably not the best way to do it. Um, or you can, you can present the love of Christ, call them to repentance in that context. And you see, you're not compromising on any of that. Therapeutic versus redemptive. Individualistic versus others oriented. Uh, in MTD and in the post-Christian culture, freedom is self-expression. Freedom is authenticity. Think about... Um, what do people look for? If Say they're visiting a church, they want to come to a church. 
What's, what's maybe like the most important thing people think about when they come to a church just as a visitor? If they have casseroles. <laughs> maybe. I guess it depends on who you are. What else might people be thinking about when they go into a church for the first time to visit? Okay, some, some might look for Bible-centeredness. Is it preaching the Bible? Uh, that, that's wonderful if people are looking for that. Let's think about the bad things that people might be looking for. Well, not the bad. Is there a band? Okay, back, zoom out a little bit from that question. What's behind that question? Is there a band? Is it entertaining? Okay, what, what else is behind that question? Is it all about making me feel good? Is it what I want? Right? I mean, what's that? Felt needs. Felt needs. And listen, we all do this, and this is not like us versus them when we're looking at all these people who think this way. We all kind of do this, right? Oh, I enjoyed worship today. Why did you enjoy worship? I really liked the song, or I liked the the music, or the band, or, or whatever. It was something that was preferential to me, and I appreciated it. We, our standard for judging these things is often very individualistic uh, in focus. There's nothing wrong with having preferences. I'm not saying that. But sometimes that becomes the priority. And, and that's all part of the, the cultural soup we're swimming in, if you will. It's individualistic in nature. Freedom is self-expression. Freedom is authenticity. As you think about um, the... the uh, issue of transgenderism, which I, I know for some of you is a very personal issue uh, as, you, as you think about that in your own family and community. But as you think about the issue of transgenderism uh, and what's driving that, part of what's driving that is I have a feeling that I am something that I physically am not. I, I, on the inside, I feel like I am something other than what I biologically have been made to be. And, and so rather than conforming to given reality, walking in repentance and those types of things, our culture says, no, 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 you do not deny those inner feelings. You conform what's outside to what's inside. Okay, all of that is expressive individualism. Okay, you see how it's just kind of permeating uh, everything in, in the culture. And as we look at the gospel, the gospel turns us, as in response to God's grace, turns us away from self and towards others. What The first great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the fruitful expression of Christian faith, to love others in the same way that we have been loved by Christ. It's an others-oriented love, such that freedom is not found in loving self and expressing self. Freedom is found in self-denial, taking up my cross and following after Jesus and loving others as the fruit of God's grace in my life. It also means that the Christian gospel calls for a connection to a community of people. Because Jesus didn't just die for individuals, though he did. He died for his people. He died for uh, his people, the church. His bride is not just one individual. It's a group. It's a covenant community, which means that the most faithful way to live out faith in Jesus Christ is not in isolation from others, but in community with others. And, and that, that's a really important point to emphasize as we see 
young people leaving and disconnecting and, and you know, not seeing a need for that community, uh, Jesus loved the community. Jesus loves his people and calls us to love them as well, uh, not just to think individualistically about what we may need. Finally, deism versus the personal sovereign and triune God. It's just simply a different God, uh, it's, which therefore means it's an idol. Uh, to say there's a God up there, he created everything, um, he has something to do with my life, but only as I need him. Only as he's kind of at my beck and call uh, as, as I am in need of him to make me feel better. How different that is, um, a God who lives to serve my needs versus the glorious, majestic, triune, holy, holy, holy God who when he reveals himself to Isaiah... In Isaiah chapter 6, and the robe, uh, or the, his glory fills the temple and it shakes the foundations. And Isaiah is undone because he sees the Lord of glory and he sees his own sin and he's trembling in the presence of God. That's a God who is worthy of our devotion and passionate adoration and lifelong commitment. You know, if we, if we feed our, the next generation kind of a whatever God. You know, he's just a benign, probably bearded, you know, pie in the sky. He's there to help you when you need him. If, if you feed that to the next generation, that's the portrait of God that we're delivering. Can you blame them for walking away from that? Because they're not really walking away from the living God in that, in that sense. They're walking away from a false portrait of of who this God really is as he reveals himself in the scriptures. And so it ought to call us, I think, as as Christians, as the church, to to proclaim God for who he is, to exalt him, to lift him up. He is glorious. He is worthy of praise and adoration. And and very often that's what captures the heart uh, rather than dumbing it down, or not dumbing it down, but watering it down, rather. But just to, to kind of paint the the distinct difference between moralistic therapeutic deism and the gospel. Real quick, turn over on the back. Um, This is from uh, the the PCA's campus ministry, which is called Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF. This is where James and I met 25 years ago or so. Um, This is from their training manual. They kind of have a whole philosophy of, of ministry on the college campus, and one of the things they do is they try to keep uh, certain things central in their, in their ministry so that they don't get caught off track one way or the other in what they call theological tangents or ethical tangents. But rather, I don't know if you all remember this phrase, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You know this? Uh, I had a printing, uh, I took a printing press class in high school and that was, that was the screensaver. You all remember screensavers? That was the screensaver on his computer, was the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Well, the main thing for the church is to keep the gospel the main thing. There's a whole lot of tangents that could become the main thing that are important and should be talked about, but cannot become the main thing and sideline the gospel. And so the, the rocket is kind of the illustration they use. They emphasize scripture, justification by faith, and sanctification, and that's what fuels ministry. That's what makes the rocket blast off, and then they try to keep uh, from letting tangents, and this is a dated list of tangents. These things are probably not anybody's hot-button issues today, 
Certainly Harry Potter is not a hot button issue. So this is probably written in like 2001 or something when the Harry Potter books were coming out. Um, you know, I guess you had churches getting on the Harry Potter bandwagon against uh, you know, witches and, and things like that. I, don't, I wouldn't involve any of that. But um, the point is, it's easy for the church to get distracted. Point in case, 2020. Okay? Uh, how, how easy would it have been for the church to get, I don't, I don't know, this is not a comment on what Bethel did, because I have no idea what you did, but how easy was it for the church to get distracted by things like, um, and, and they're important things, I don't, so don't hear me, don't hear what I'm not saying, they're important things, but how easy was it for the church to get distracted by things like, are we going to wear masks, are we not going to wear masks? Are we going to meet, or are we not going to meet? Are we going to go online, or are we not going to go online? Uh, are we going to talk? Are we going to recommend vaccines? Are we not going to recommend vaccines? I mean, these are all challenging things for the church to try to figure out, and nobody, none of us knew what we were doing. We we're just kind of like, what in the world do we do? How do we handle this? God help us. You know, you lean upon the Lord in those instances. But it would have been very easy for us, for the church, to be consumed with these things and get totally off track from the ministry of the church and preaching the gospel. Again, it's not to say those weren't important discussions. We need, you had to figure it all out. You had, to, you had to know what was right, what was, what was good, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know how y'all feel talking about those things, but I don't enjoy it. But it, was, it, it, it can distract us. It can get us off track from the main thing, which ought to be the gospel. Think about it this way. What is it that reaches people for Jesus Christ? What is it that converts people? It's the gospel, the Bible, preaching the Bible with focus on Christ crucified. That's how you reach people. How do you build them up in spiritual maturity, which I've got all these points here that we're not going to talk about, but how do you build them up into spiritual maturity as Paul aimed to do in his own ministry? The Bible, preach the gospel. It's not a two-track system. One track for the believer, one track for the non-believer. You, you preach Christ. Christ crucified and risen for sinners. Repentance and faith in response to that. And teaching the whole counsel of God to build up into spiritual maturity to help us, the way we think, what we feel, what we do, to reflect Christ-like uh, maturity in that way. Uh, I'd love to talk about some of these other things, but we, we won't uh, do this tonight. Uh, let me just encourage you, though, that the, the message of the gospel, who Christ is and what he has done for us, and the response that is demanded from that, uh, or the response that we ought to give to that, that never changes. Ne- neither does the goal of, being, of building mature disciples. That, that never changes. But the application and the context of that message and of that goal often change in response to what's going on kind of in the moment. And, and so part of what churches have to try to figure out is, you know, how do we apply this unchanging message, unchanging word, this unchanging truth to a culture and a context that is constantly changing? But they're always asking the same questions. Who am I? What's my purpose? What is my authority? What's wrong with the world? 
and what can be done to fix it. They're always asking those questions, but the answers they're giving are often uh, different depending on the context. Let me close with um, a quote from uh, a guy named Tim Keller, who's, who's a he's pastor, retired pastor in the PCA, uh, my denomination. He planted a church. I mean, y'all, he's, he's famous, so y'all may know who he is. But he planted a church in New York City uh, called Redeemer Presbyterian Church uh, back in the '90s, I think. And uh, you know, you think about a difficult place to be an evangelical. Reformed Christian. Uh, New York wasn't always unfriendly to that, but it certainly is now. It's hard ground to uh, plow. And and so he's had to think creatively about how to communicate the gospel in in an environment that's hostile to it. How to communicate the gospel in a very secularized um, area of, of the United States. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's different from Winsboro. It's different from from York, but the message is the same. And so he, uh, he I don't think he made this up, but this is, this is how he defines um, the, the, the word that's used for that task of communicating the unchanging truth to a changing context is called contextualization. You're, you're, you're bringing it into this context that you're in. God does this in the Bible in lots of different ways. It's, it's, not, it's not something we made up. Um, but here's, here's Tim Keller's definition of it. He says, contextualization, giving unchanging truth to a changing culture. Uh, Contextualization is giving the Bible's answer, which people may not at all want to hear, to the questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in language and forms they can comprehend and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel even if they reject them. Sound contextualization or faithful contextualization means translating and adapting the communication and ministry of the gospel to a particular culture without compromising the essence and the particulars of the gospel itself. Uh, let me give one illustration of, of this. If you think about... Um, uh, does anybody play golf in here? Sort of. sort of. Okay, good. Then if this illustration is wrong, you won't know it. I've, I've heard this, so I think this is right. I don't play golf, but I, I've heard that when you're, when you're swinging, there's kind of a, a lean back and a lean forward, right? You're leaning back, and then you're, you're following through. And think about those two ends, leaning back, following through, the church has both of those tasks. We've got to be kind of leaning into the word, the text of the Bible, the gospel message. We've got to be rooted there, but we've also got to be applying it in way, and communicating in, in ways that people in our culture can understand without compromising it. And that, that's a difficult task. Some guys are really good at the text. You know, you've, you've probably heard sermons where it feels like you have been trans back to the 15th century BC and you've learned all about the Hittites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and whoever else, all the other ites. You've learned all about them and you have no idea how it applies to your life today. But you've learned a lot of information about things in the past, right? That, that guy leaned into the text very well. And then sometimes you hear sermons that are all about 
How, how do I have a better marriage? How do I raise my children better? Maybe there's some principles for how to have a, a better life. And it's all today, it's all application, and there's not a whole lot of text in it. You'll, you'll kind of see what I'm talking about. And the task of contextualization, of taking the unchanging truth and applying it to a changing culture, is you've got to do both steps. You've got to lean back and you've got you to follow through. And, and that can be a challenge sometimes because sometimes um, people over-contextualize. So maybe you, you watch a mega church, if we can pick on mega churches generically, um, maybe you watch a mega church sermon, a guy, you know, pastor who's super popular, he's got millions of YouTube followers, uh, and, and you watch his sermon, and you walk away from it and you feel really good. Like, I, I feel like I, I feel really good about myself. I feel like I've got some tools to have a really good life from, from this sermon. And, you know, everybody's liking it. Everybody's giving it a thumbs up. And he's got a, a wild following. He's over-contextualizing. There's, there's very little gospel in it. Maybe a lot of helpful advice, but very little gospel in it. Um, that, that often happens where we kind of uh, conform to the culture too much and we lose the essence of the gospel. But often, probably folks in our camp, Bible-believing, trying to stick to the text, we're maybe too much leaning on the back leg a little bit and and not thinking through how to communicate it effectively to a culture that doesn't accept the assumptions of the Bible uh, the way perhaps they used to. Um, So that's, that's contextualization. It affects the way you communicate. It impacts the way you do ministry. You know, think about the music, think about uh, you know, the, the way the church feels, the welcoming of the church. All, all the, it affects all of those things because all of those things are communicating something to the people who are walking through the doors of your church. Now, you don't have to change everything. That's not the point. But you've got to think about it. You've got to think about it. Okay. Well, that was a long road from Paul to uh, New York City, but I, I hope you connected the dots. And I hope we connected the dots in between. Okay. Any, any questions about... Christ-centered ministry, aiming at spiritual maturity, applying the truth in a changing culture. Do they or has that just kind of developed, or was it? Yeah, so the question is, you know, if we're picking on the megachurch, um, and, and the message sounds like moralistic therapeutic deism, are they using that as a model? The answer is no. It's, it's just woven into so much of the culture and, and into the church, and there's a whole reason, set of reasons for that, um, that, that are will require a little more time. But, it, you know, there are certain kind of cultural assumptions that we all accept often uncritically. And, and we don't think about uh, how, how these things in the world are, are affecting us. But I would say that kind of the message of God wants you to be happy, God is there for you when you need help, be a good person, good people go to heaven... In many ways, that is the message of liberal Protestantism. Okay, 
And so when the mainline liberal Protestant churches began to, started to decline, okay, so the, think, think about, um, you know, kind of, there were, I think, seven major mainline denominations in, in Protestant America, the, the Presbyterian Church, not, the ARP is not a mainline church, PCA is not a mainline church, we're, we're sidelined. <laughs> um, but the, the dominant, the big, big steeple churches historically in, in USA, Methodism, um, Presbyterianism, Episcopal, and there may be a few others, uh, Congregational, and so forth. Liberal Protestants, okay? When, when Protestant Christianity began to drift into liberalism and, and lose the gospel, the message became what we're calling moralistic therapeutic deism. Be good, good people go to heaven, treat people kindly, God wants you to be happy and feel good. And, and so then, and that generates a lot of, that's a lot of motivation to do good things, right? So as, as liberal Protestantism, this is what uh, Christian Smith argues, as liberal Protestantism declines institutionally, its influence is so pervasive that that message just kind of infiltrates the whole of American culture. And so it's just kind of this cultural Christianity is liberal Protestantism. And so as that cultural influence is coming back into even conservative churches, because we're not immune from that, uh, then, yeah, you hear the popular message that you're hearing is really not a new message at all. It's, it's, it's classic liberalism. And Christian Smith just put a name to it. Um, but yeah, I, I, but nobody, there's no like church of MTD. There's no, you know, nobody's writing a systematic theology on MTD or anything like that. It's just kind of, you know, it's like the old story about the, the two young fish who are swimming by and an old fish passes them. And as he passes, he says, boy, you're in the water nice today. And they keep going. A little while later, one of them says, what's water? Well, they have no idea. They're swimming in it. Um, and that's, that's kind of how the culture works is we're swimming in it and we don't even know. And, and you got to kind of stop and take a step back and think about it. So I think it's just kind of just influences, but there's no kind of institution or structure that's promoting it uh, explicitly. I don't know if that answers your question, but... Okay, I think I've gone over my time. Uh, any other questions that James can answer later? Okay, good. <laughs> thank you all for your patience. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that the gospel is true, that Jesus is risen that he is indeed the exalted Lord who has poured out his spirit upon the church and is now actively at work carrying out his mission through us. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church built upon faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd give us confidence in the message of the gospel, its truth, its power, uh, and let us not waver from it. But may we be deeply rooted in it and being built up in it and abounding with gratitude. We will give you all glory for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.